Good morning, everybody. It's so nice to be here and see you. Um, will you please pray with me before we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you for being here with us this morning. Um, we thank you so much for all that has already gone on in our worship today and all of the ways that you have spoken through Anne, Rachel, and the worship team. Um, Lord, now just be with me and help me. Uh, Lord, use the words you've given me to continue to draw our hearts closer to you. Amen. So good morning again. Um, it's been so many good words and so much to think about this morning. I kind of feel like uh, I'm done. <laughs> I, I'm full. But uh, we'll go on anyway. Um, so as Pastor Mark said, this is the third week of Advent. Uh, we're reaching the halfway point of the season. And we're halfway through the month of December. And um, for most of us, that means we're in the throes of buying gifts, planning and attending celebrations and special activities, making plans for the holidays, on top of going about our daily lives and dealing with everything that that entails. Um, and as much fun as this can be, it can also be exhausting. Um, to participate in our culture this time of year is to participate in a frenzy of celebration. Uh, Phoebe asked me a couple days ago what everyone's celebrating if they aren't celebrating Jesus. And what, I think what Pastor Mark said last week about being in danger of celebrating the celebration is appropriate for what's going on out there for most people in our culture. Um, people love the Christmas season, regardless of their faith or their upbringing or anything. Um, love the decorations, the candles and lights of all kinds shining in the darkness, the, the imagery, um, special music, special movies, all of it. And there is a common theme um, among what's going, you know, what the culture is celebrating. You know, there's the appreciation for time with loved, on, loved ones, including a hope of reconciliation with family members, finding love, and all being right with the world for a couple days. And there's certainly not anything wrong with enjoying all of this or whatever. Um, parties, cheesy movies, lots of food, gifts, all of it is great. Um, but it can be distracting. Um, participating in our cultural observations of the season is fun. But it can also be stressful to try and do all the things, um, get in the way of our prayer and observance. And also, um, there's the dissonance. Because it's time, you know, where it, it's a season of joy. But that doesn't always... In the, in the middle of that, there are real challenges and sorrows in our lives. We're still struggling to maybe put food on the table to keep our lights on. We're dealing with loss, um, trouble in our relationships with our family and our marriages. Um, we're sick. And sometimes our celebrations um, among family and friends don't go the way they do in the movies, where it's all happy at the end. Um, American Christmas is fun, it can be happy, but whether we enjoy it often depends on our circumstances. 
Um, and that is not true joy. Joy, as I'm going to discuss, does not depend on our circumstances. Um, it can be experienced in the hardest periods of our lives. Um, and joy is, as we've said, the week, <clears throat> the focus of this week's Advent is meditation. Um, and the observance of Advent is a check and a contrast to what's going on out in the culture. Um, I love the church here, um, of which Advent is the first season, because it allows us to rehearse what God has done for us every year in a rhythm, as the seasons provide us a regular reminder of various aspects of God's redemptive work in the world. It is a helpful and beautiful way to return each year and remember, because we need reminders, of um, the truth of the gospel. Advent is all about waiting. How many of you like to wait? <laughs> I don't love to wait. Um, waiting can be a trying task, especially because we're a society that loves instant gratification. Um, we have engineered so many systems and technologies and anything we can to get the waiting out of our lives. And the more we do that, the harder and harder time we have waiting. Think about how irritated you get if it takes your webpage to load for a couple seconds, you know. And a couple years ago, you would have been happy to wait a minute because that was faster than it was before. <laughs> and, you know, the, the less we have to wait, the harder time we have with it. We wait because we believe that something we desire is coming and it's worth that time, that inconvenience, um, and possibly the pain. That goes, in, that goes in between when it comes and that. During Advent, we remember that the world is broken by sin. And because of this, what God made that was good has gone very, very wrong. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. We remember the promises God made to reconcile the world to himself and to deal with sin. Um... We remember how people waited for their fulfillment in the coming of Jesus, how we are still waiting for him to return as he said, um, and bring the final fulfillment of these promises in his second coming. In traditional churches, this is a season of fasting, of reflection and repentance, as the church looks forward to celebrating the coming of Jesus in Christmas. And it's also time to remind ourselves to forsake our sin. Um, and prepare ourselves to be ready for his coming again. In the same way that we take stock of our lives at the beginning of a new calendar year, Adventist allows us to remember where we are headed and consider what we can do to reorder our perspective on the world and the character of our lives in light of God's love for us and the redemptive work he has done in the world. In light of the description of the season I presented, it could seem like an odd context in which to, cut, to discuss joy. If I invite you to enjoy, engage in waiting, repentance, reflection, um, your first thought may not be, yes, let's rejoice. Um, but again, joy is not happiness, and it isn't based on our circumstances. Uh, it can still be present in the midst of pain and struggle. And joy doesn't incur in a vacuum. You can't be joyful without a reason to be joyful. And the person and work of Jesus is certainly a reason to be joyful. So, the observance of Advent is the perfect atmosphere to incubate joy. 
We are reflecting on the promises of God to deal with sin and restore the world to goodness. And after we've reminded ourselves that we can hope in God's faithfulness, knowing what he has done by sending his son to us, and that we can rest in peace knowing that, that through Jesus our future with him is secure, what else can we do but rejoice? So what does Isaiah 11, 1 through 9, tell us about where we find our joy? A couple weeks ago, William provided a thorough picture of where the people to whom this prophecy was directed were at when this prophecy was given. And it wasn't a good place. At the time Isaiah is prophesying, um, the kingdom of David and Solomon has long been split in two. And the larger portion of that kingdom, Israel, um, which is mostly all the tribes except for the tribe of Judah and some of the priests, is being destroyed and the people exiled and effectively scattered to the wind. The rulers of both kingdoms were idolatrous, faithless, corrupt leaders. And while there always were some among the people who remained faithful to the Lord, most of the people followed where their leaders led. While the people of Judah, to whom Isaiah ministers, are not also conquered by the Assyrians at this time, the threat that they could also be destroyed by Assyria remains. And even before that threat, they had experienced pretty regular periods of warfare, including with their kinsmen in Israel. And so the people were under a threat of war. Their kings were not following the Lord like David and Solomon. And the people were subject to ongoing political chaos from their corrupt rulers. And suffering was pretty widespread for anybody who was not part of that ruling class. Um, if you're paying attention to the news, this might sound familiar. Threat of devastating war, political chaos, corruption, and widespread suffering among the people. It's understandable that people would wonder if God had left them completely. Much like we often look around the world and struggle to see where God is in this, the people of Judah must have done the same. In the chapters preceding our text, um, I was going to say Isaiah, the, Isaiah's prophecy was the answer to the people of this time. In the chapters preceding this text, Isaiah makes it clear that Israel's been destroyed because of their sin and unfaithfulness toward God. Um, Isaiah rails against the corruption of their leaders, the lack of care for the poor, and the following after other gods. He makes it clear that the destruction of Israel by Assyria is God's hand of judgment to them. But he also makes it clear that um, the evil committed by the Assyrians against the people of Israel is an abomination. While God uses the suffering and evil that comes from um, Assyria to accomplish his purposes, he makes it clear he does not condone the kind of corruption or evil. At this point, Isaiah's prophecy changes tone as he speaks of what will come after judgment has been brought to the people of the ancient Near East for their sinful ways. And he says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. This prophecy is about the line of Jesse, the father of King David, and at this time of the prophecy, there was still a descendant of David on the throne of Judah. But the line and the tradition had fallen from what it had been. David was promised a kingdom for his descendants so long as they loved and served the Lord. And after his son Solomon, what followed were centuries of kings who mostly did not love and serve the Lord. And that was punctuated by kings here and there who, who did find the Lord and love him and return his own heart and the hearts of the people to the Lord, but they were few and far between. 
That Jesse is a stump in this prophecy and not a tree indicates that this element will be cut off. A shoot coming from the stump is something new starting over from something that has been destroyed. Life will come from a place that has been cut off and could appear dead. And not life that just manages to eke out a survival, but life that bears fruit. We see this fulfilled in the way Jesus came. By the time the prophecy is fulfilled, um, the lot of Jesse is even more obscure. The king that is on the throne in Judah at the time of Jesus, placed there by the Romans, um, wasn't even a descendant of David. Um, and we find Jesus, the heir of David, as the son of a poor carpenter living in obscurity far from the center of power. And from a human perspective, even more, unli- un- even more unlikely instrument in the hands of God than the line of David during the time of Isaiah. After all, they hold power. If they repented, it would seem easier for them to bring restoration to the people. That's not what God had in mind. Um, and in spite of rising from obscurity, through his life and death, that Jesus changed the world. And Isaiah goes on, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> Doesn't this sound like what we would love to have in a, in a ruler, in a leader? Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might. Um, you know, I think that when most of us went last month to vote in the elections, we weren't even dreaming of hoping for such things. And whoever prevailed. Um, <clears throat> the king who's coming will have the spirit of the Lord resting on him. And it was common in the Old Testament for the spirit of God to follow on someone um, to accomplish a purpose. You can find the spirit of the Lord fell on Samson and he killed the lion. The Spirit of the Lord fell on Gideon and he marshaled an army to defeat the Midianites. The Spirit of the Lord fell on David and he danced. Um, and at his baptism, we read in the Gospels that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jesus. And we can see the characteristics in this description. <clears throat> As Jesus practiced his ministry, the wisdom and understanding with which he dealt with people and with which he dealt with the challenges that came from the Jewish leaders, cutting to the heart of the issues that they brought before him, expanding their understanding beyond what was usually a binary, double-edged sword of either or. And Jesus lifted that beyond the imaginations of any, any, any answer that anybody expected him to give. We see his reverence for the Father and also his deep appreciation for the faith of those who recognize his power through the Spirit. And Isaiah goes on, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give directions for the poor of the earth. And so Isaiah tells us what rule under the promised one will be like. Justice will not be based on what one looks like or the reputation their social status, but on what is right. Unlike the systems of the world, in the ancient Near East and now, the poor and oppressed will be treated fairly. No more will justice be available only to those with the social position and money to buy it. The work of Jesus 
during his life was not to exercise his power or bring judgment. He was clear that that is something that we are waiting for when he comes again. Um, but we see that Jesus saw and cared for the poor, and he helped them. We see that his actions inspire justice by the way that he treated people. For example, through his interactions with Jesus, Zacchaeus, who had become a wealthy man by extorting money from his countrymen in his job as a tax collector, not only repented and changed his ways, but repaid the money to those he had stolen from. This didn't come because Jesus sat him down and said, now let me explain to you why what you're doing is very, very wrong. Um, most of us, when we're sitting, don't even need that anyway. It came um, from his kindness, um, his attention, and his grace. Through, and his character inspired the justice that came out of Zacchaeus' actions after that. For those of us who have been the agents of injustice in any level, and really that's all of us, all of us have been on justice sometime. Um, this shows us that knowing Jesus, we have the opportunity to have our sin revealed, repent, and be forgiven, and make things right, which saves us from the wrath that is to come. And Isaiah says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash about his waist. And this is the other side of the coin. Not only do the oppressed receive justice, but the oppressors as well. And the unrepentant wicked will meet their end. We notice the powerful language here. Those who are practicing evil are taken out, and they are taken out decisively. Um, but it doesn't come, it doesn't even take much effort. It doesn't come with a powerful arm and a lot of force, um, strong kicking legs, but with his breath. Um, his breath is so powerful that this is all that is required to end the wicked. And that make, it makes sense because it was also his breath that gave us life. Additionally, we don't see him armed with any kind of crazy weapons, but with righteousness and faithfulness. <clears throat> this is not, kind of, not the kind of power we're used to looking for when we're looking for help. We're looking for salvation, but ironically, it is more powerful and it is more beautiful than um, force and weapons. And what does the world look like when he accomplishes his work? It says the wolf will lie with the lamb, live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I know I can't be alone in hearing that and thinking that this is what my soul is longing for. So, the first thing that interested me about this passage is that this prophecy has been in the context um, of a king and a leader, but what is described isn't the effects of civil government or religious government. Um, the work that the world promises in this prophecy operates and rules beyond civil government to all of the workings of the world. What we see in the description of 
predator and prey together of strong and vulnerable is an overturning of the way we experience nature to work. Um, and in some ways, nature is, um, is not the appropriate word there because it's not natural. It's not what we experience is not the way it was ever supposed to be. Um, it's not an upending of nature, but of the havoc that sin has wrecked upon the earth. So, um, you know, this happened as I've been reading to my kids and we've been going through a Jesse Tree reading series. We read through some passages in Genesis in the first and second of December, and I just heard the echoes in this of Genesis of grass being provided to all the animals to eat because they weren't attacking and killing each other. And as, I, as we read in Genesis 3, um, and I heard the curses that God was given, um, and you see in this passage a child sitting with snakes, um, but you know, in, the, in the curse in Genesis 3, there was enmity between the seed of the woman and the snake. And while a lot of that had to do with Jesus and Satan, it's, it's an echo of that picture, that what happened then is being overturned now. So the vulnerable have nothing to fear from the powerful or what we consider dangerous. Fear and danger are no more. Can you imagine that? I was thinking about how much my life is organized and based on avoiding fear and danger, both real and imaginary. And I don't even know if I could imagine being without that. It would be so different. And what freedom that would be. The words of Isaiah tell us through these images that sin will be dealt with. And its effects will be effaced from, through the promised one, Jesus. This was begun through his death on the cross, <clears throat> which paid the penalty for our sin. Continues now as he works through the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and will finally be complete. When he comes to execute, execute justice and set all things right and put an end to the far-reaching consequences of sin. If the hope of this is not something to rejoice over, I don't know what is. So this passage contains both the already and the not yet that we reflect on during Advent. Others waited, and we are still waiting. But no matter what we are experiencing, there is joy for us both in what has already come and in what is still to come. We rejoice and know that God is faithful because the shoot of Jesse has already come, and most of us are here this morning because we have seen him, and we know what he is like, that he is good, faithful, and compassionate. He didn't, during his life, join the unjust power structures of the time, but care for the hurting and needy, and called out those who were not living in fear of the Lord. He suffered injustice, at the hands of the ruling authorities and was killed. Through his death, the penalty of our sin has been paid, and we can develop the restored relationship with our loving Creator that He always intended us to have. When we repent and turn to Him, He sends the Holy Spirit to live in us, to pray for us and with us, to guide us and help us let go of our sinful habits. And for this, we should rejoice every day. It becomes easy for us to take things for granted and to become distracted in the bustle of our lives and everything that we have coming, everything we have going on, which is why we come here to remind each other every week. 
and why once a year we take a day to reflect on why we should rejoice, not just during this season, but always. Meanwhile, Jesus has not yet returned to bring justice to the whole world, and the beautiful picture of a world without the effects of sin that Isaiah has shown us has not yet come to be. However, we can hold on to the picture of a life without fear, without harm, destruction, or injustice, and know that no matter what is happening now, this is our future. And joy flows both from the hope that God has promised these things will be, and the peace we have knowing that he is faithful to keep his promises. But we are still waiting. And waiting is not necessarily a passive activity. Just as we wait for the celebrations of the coming weeks, by planning activities, by gifts and meals, we are called to prepare and be ready for Jesus to come. In the book of Matthew, everywhere he goes, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand which means that it is here and available for us to take hold of. <clears throat> we are already a part of the kingdom of heaven, and we can and should be living lives that extend justice, goodness, and righteousness into the world. So, <clears throat> as we go out today, um, enjoy the music and the celebration, the fun and the, the gifts and everything that's out there, but also takes <clears throat> be sure to set aside time to remember and share that your joy comes from knowing what God has done for you, what he continues to do in and through you, and what he will do in the future to restore the world to the way it ought to be. God bless you. Amen. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Jessica, uh, for that. Um, we're going home. Let's stand. Let's. Uh, uh, Deacon Rita, I have uh, some books for you and Patrick uh, here too. So before you run off, uh, please see see me. Thank you so much, each and every one of you. Um, just thank you for your continued prayers. Uh, thank you for being a part of City Church. So good to see, I didn't see Jamie. Uh, just so good to see uh, uh, Jamie and uh, Ryan. I need hands to hold. Uh, Sister Meeks, would you come? Jamie and Ryan, would you come? Uh, just just hold my hand. I, I just need a hand to hold, that's all. That's, that's all I need. I just need hands to hold. You're right, you're good right there. Just so love the Gordos. Um, Thank you so very much. Um, thank you. Would you bow your heads and hearts with me? Our Father and our God, I love you. I worship you. I bow before you. I submit my life to you. But not just me. There are countless women, men, and children that bow the knee, bow the heart, confess with their lips that Jesus is Lord. Thank you. Thank you for being God. Thank you for 
creating this 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 organism we call City Church of Sacramento. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for him being Emmanuel, showing us life, showing us sacrifice, and showing us life eternal. Father, I, I, I just humbly say thank you. Thank you for what our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, and our hearts have experienced. Now, be with us today, this week, this season, this year, in the days, months, and weeks of the life that you've given us. Be with us. Be our God. Mold us and shape us into your image. Let us be about your business. Father, in everything that we say and do, let us set aside all the, the mess and the distractions of this life and focus on you and only you. Thank you for everyone that uh, sacrifices so much to, uh, to, to disciple, to develop, to train. Thank you for our teachers, for our musicians. Thank you for our chaplains. Thank you for our deacons. Thank you for our advisory council. Thank, thank you, thank you for, thank you for Tabitha taking pictures. Just, just thank you. Just, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Watch over us. Protect us from the evil one. Keep us from the snares of this world and save us from ourselves. It's in the precious name of your son, my savior, our savior, Jesus the Christ, that I ask it all. Let every heart say, amen. 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 Greet somebody.